Good morning. That's good to see you this morning. Turn to someone around you and say good morning to them if you'd like to do that. If you're not comfortable, that is fine. Find someone to say good morning to. It's uh, great to see you. We are so glad you're here in this beautiful month of July with us. And today we continue in this series called the Apostles' Creed, which we are together going through the creed. And today we find ourselves at the point where we simply, it says, he descended to hell the third day he rose again from the dead. Now, through this process, I've kind of given you some caveats as we began together about what we're doing and what we're not doing. One, that we're not preaching the creed because that of creeds have no authority within themselves. You've probably heard this if you've been here every week, but you're going to hear it one more time. Well, at least you're going to hear it a number of times, okay? Because I want you to understand that. That the creed reflects the word of God. We use the illustration like this. It's sort of like the moon that reflects the light of the sun. The moon has no light within itself, but yet all the light that we see from the moon is a direct reflection of the sun. The creed is exactly like that. It reflects the word of God. It helps us in understanding. In fact, we've used some terms throughout this series. And one, it gives us some symmetry and clarity. It talks about community and then how we counsel one another through the struggles of life. It gives us some clarity into that of the nature and the the character and understanding who God the Father is, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So as we have been doing, and we're going to do just a moment, we're going to stand and recite if you're comfortable doing that. If not, safe space. So no worries if you don't feel comfortable doing that. That what we realize is when we stand and we recite the creed together, that we're doing a couple of things. One is this that we're joining with that of uh, our four founders in the Christian faith for well over a thousand years who have done this together in like settings as we are in this morning and as believers do all across the world today. Secondly is that we reject the modern narratives of our day just as our four founders rejected the modern narratives of their day also. That they said, no, these are not the things that define us. The word of God defines us, and that is where we stand in, in our lives. So they, when we recite this, we say, this is what we believe. More than what we know, because it starts with, I believe in. So it's more than what we know, but yet what we believe, because we know that belief simply drives us to action and transformation within our lives. So I've given you a bunch of isms over the past few weeks together. These are the things that we reject. We talked about individualism, progressivism, legalism. So today we reject postmodernism. And postmodernism has a lot to do with everything to do with truth. And, and that is that truth is not relative, but truth is truth. That, in other words, what we're saying is that my truth is not my truth and your truth is not your truth. But we truly believe that there is a truth that applies to all mankind, humankind across the board. And that is God's words to us, the word of God. It is. And you say, well, Mark, that's really narrow-minded of you to say there is one truth. No, can I tell you, if you think that truth is relative and your truth is yours and my truth is mine, then I think that you're even more narrow-minded and more arrogant than I would be in saying that because to think that you possess what is truth for you because we all know that we cannot be trusted. We can't, right? We cannot be trusted. You say, Mark, I am offended that already you've called me arrogant and you've only been up there like, what, a couple of minutes, you know, two minutes at the most, and you've already like laid it out. But it's true that we cannot be trusted. Look at the mess that we've made with our lives over the past. We cannot. So to understand or to think that there's truth within us, within ourselves is absolutely arrogant 
And, and it is very narrow-minded. We, we reject postmodernism. We reject what we call emotionalism. And that is that we are driven by our emotions. That whatever our emotions tells us, then that is truth for us. No, we are simply reason-driven people and not necessarily or completely experience-driven people. But we're driven by the Word of God in our lives. So as we stand and read this together, I love this because it, it just brings us to this thought that we are part of a community far beyond ourselves and a community far beyond our time. That we're part of a community that spans over millions and millions of believers and that is it expands over, uh, over oh, well over a thousand years as we read this together. Would you stand with me for a moment if you're comfortable? If you're not, then this is a safe space. No worries about that. That is absolutely fine. We're all good with this. I always say this to you every Sunday morning. We're all good with most of this until we read down to the bottom where it says that I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. And I always have to explain it to you. We chose to put the original version of this up because, well, it is what uh, that, that believers have read for thousand, uh, over a thousand years before us. But the Holy Catholic Church is the encompassing church, the universal church, the body of Christ which does incorporate that of you and I and the Roman Catholics and everybody else, Presbyterians and Methodists, and I won't try to name them all because I'll miss somebody and then you'll get upset at me again about I, I missed your group. So, so anyway, it, it encompasses all of us. So it's on the screen and on the, the banner behind me and in your bulletin. And let's read together this morning. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he came to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. You may be seated. Someone said to me one Sunday morning, said, we can tell what kind of church you were raised in because you don't have the cadence right when you read this, you know, that this is the way we read this. We grew up reading this, and there's a certain kind of cadence that you have. So I'm working on that. Just bear with me, okay? Uh, and I'll get that at some point, hopefully, maybe by the end of August, you know, I'll get to there. I'll get to it, yes. Last week, we covered the points of Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and was buried. And what we said, these are the facts. They're not simply debatable facts, but these are the facts we know. Historically, they are absolutely proven even outside of Scripture. They are. But we wanted to get underneath the surface of those facts. And that is what we're going to do today with those, top, with those thoughts of he descended to hell and on the third day he rose. But last week, going under the surface of, of, our, of our section of the creed, we, we came up with some ideas. One that it's this, that Jesus is reconciling man back to what the heart needs the most, that we realize that something is missing in our lives. And so that Jesus is reconciling us back to what the heart needs the most. Second was that, that he's reconciling God's enemies back to God. And that was a, that's an interesting statement because how are we God's enemies? We're, we're, whether we are irreligious, we have no place in our life for religion in God, or whether we are very religious and we substitute religion for God, that we find ourselves enemies to God and God Jesus reconciles us back to God. And the third was this, that he purchases a people and he creates the church where we were not a people, that we are now simply the people of God. But today 
we approach something a little more complex, I guess, and more confusing and even more as, as I think, debatable in a theological world that we have live in. And that is this term, he descended into hell and the third day he rose. What, but the part that is being debated by many is this statement, he descended into hell. Because if you research the creed, well, we realize that that portion of the creed, he descended into hell, was not even added until somewhere around the 5th century. And then sometime around the 6th or 7th century, they started reciting that as part of the creed. But even when they first put it in, people refused to even say those kinds of things. And what we realize, too, that a lot of evangelical churches today that still use the creed in their worship gatherings have omitted that part. Now, can I tell you something? Just a caveat before we begin this morning, that this teaching today is, is not about debating whether that statement, he descended into hell, is metaphorical or literal. That's not what we're going to do today, okay? Now, we are going to preach it and teach it being metaphorical, absolutely, but yet I'm not here to debate that with you. If you want to debate that with me, then we'll get together for coffee and we'll talk about that, and someday maybe we can preach that in a teaching and, and, and have a, a better understanding of that. So that's not what we're going to do. And you said, but Mark, then if, if, if it's like that, then why did you leave it in there? You know, why did you even bring that up, okay? This is July. We're having a good day. You bring something up. Now you got my brain thinking all about it. I'm Googling this, wondering, what are you really talking about? <clears throat> and so I I want to preach that to you this morning is simply what that means and address that. Now, to do that, we have to catch up with kind of where Jesus is in his earthly ministry and his life on earth. Last week, we left Jesus in this setting where he is brutally beaten. His beard has been put, pulled out. He's been punched. He's been spit on. He's been mocked. He's been belittled. His back has been beaten to the point that all the skin has been ripped away from his very body. He's bloody disfigured. We, we see him as this man where there's blood dripping from his face, along with the spit of all the mockers around him. We do, and he's unrecognizable. And the first thing we want to do, even though these are words to us at this moment, yet we know how true they are, is we want to turn our face from that gruesome sight of Christ in that situation. But here is the thing I want you to understand, and we covered this a little bit last week, is that really we should turn our face toward him in the gruesomeness of his crucifixion. Why? Because in the violence and the grotesqueness of his crucifixion, we understand God's feeling towards sin. We absolutely do, that we understand that God hates sin. And you say, Mark, what does that mean? That God, being that good father, loving father, he hates the things that harm his children. He does. He hates the things that harm his children. And I think you need to understand that this morning. You do. If you are a father, a mother, parent, or you're an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent in this room this morning, then you understand that you want the very best for your children. You hate to see them in pain. You hate to see them in pain. So you want the best for them, and that is exactly what God wants for us. And to look upon the cross and to look at the condition of Christ, we understand that he hates the things that harms the children that he loves. He hates them. You know, Reeve and I were, were sort of in this different time in our life right now. And, and for two weeks, we have been home, just the two of us. Actually, Coco, our dog's at home with us. But, you know, it's just the two of us. And we're kind of working through all of these things about no, no longer having a child at home. And we'll have Grayson at the end of the month for a week and a half. And then he goes back to, to Charleston. And, and then he's, we won't be able to bring him home until Thanksgiving. And, 
So anyway, we, we have been doing this. And, and can I tell you a wonderful thing about when your kids are away from you? It's a, thing, it's a thing called Find My iPhone. Now, I don't know if you've ever used that or not to track your children down. All the children in the room, put your fingers in your ears. You know nothing about what I'm saying. And when you leave, you will be completely, your memory will be erased when you go through the doors and you'll remember none of that part of this sermon, okay? And, and, and so what we do is... Uh, <sighs> Don't tell Grayson when he comes at the end of the month, okay? But we track him, okay? That's what we do, right? Because well, you're nosy. Hey, one day I sent a message to him, and he was, he was on a trip, his little summer getaway kind of thing with his buddies, and they were in Miami. And uh, I, I, I sent him a text and said, Grayson, what are you doing in a Cuban cigar shop? Okay, that's what I said to him, you know? And he sent me back this message and says, Dad, you're a creeper, is what he said to me, right? Yeah. Well, they were getting coffee, and they were buying a souvenir for someone else. And, and so anyway, that, uh, so we've tracked Well, last night, we knew that he was downtown Charleston. At Charleston, he has to be back in his room. We thought at 10 o'clock, he has to be back. And if you're not back at the Citadel by the time they take to be at the Citadel, it's tough, okay? I mean, I'm just going to tell you, it's not a party, and it's not a smack on the hand, but it's tough. And so... We were watching him downtown, and, and he was getting later and later, and he's moving, his little dot, you know, is moving slower and slower back to the campus, and we're thinking, oh, Lord, what are they going to do to our child if he's late? You know, what do they do to him? They're going to torture him? I don't know what they're going to do to our, our baby if he gets back late. And, and finally, what we realized that, uh, you know, find my iPhone is not always absolutely correct time-wise. And we, what we realized is that he had been there. He had been there for a while. And also, we didn't realize that we thought 10 o'clock was the curfew and 1045 was the curfew. So we lost years of our life worrying about him for nothing. Okay? Why? Because we, we are his parents and we love him and we want the very best for him and we don't want to see him in pain. We don't want to see him running more PT than he's already running. So here's the thought, that we, we, were, we were worried about him and concerned about him. We look upon this figure, this grotesque figure of Jesus on the cross. And what it says to us, when we want to turn away, we look at him and what it says to us It really says how much he loves us and how much he hates the things that harm us in life. Yes. And if you can can paint God to be cruel, and if you can paint God to be some vicious, wrathful God, somehow some punitive God out of that, then you really don't understand who Jesus is. You don't. Thank you. Can I read this story to you? from the book of Matthew, chapter 27. I'm going to read a lot of scripture to you, so hang on, stay with me, okay? But it's a great narrative, and so it brings us to the point where Jesus is in Matthew 27 and verse 32. And we read together, And they went out, and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they had put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Uh, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And we know from historical accounts outside of the Bible that there was this anomaly that took place at some point in history, right around that time, where during that of, of the middle of the day, there is this there is this eclipse, this darkness that covers the world. And we know this because this is extremely factual. So this is not about debating that. Now, chapter 27, verse 46, we read on. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is, he is calling Elijah. And one of them at, at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see it, whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yelled or yielded up his spirit. And this in the book of John is where we find those words. It is finished. And behold, the curtain of the temple were torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints which had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, along whom were Mary Magdalene, the, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen, clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Let me read a little more to you because not that this gets better, but this gets more intense. It is so powerful. 28 and verse 1, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the seventh, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and set on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled. And became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. What a powerful narrative. 
What a powerful narrative. I can never read this without something just leaping inside of me, you know, that, that this is what Christ did for you. He did for you and I. It's such a powerful thing. But when I go back to this statement, descended into hell, and I still have that question, why did we leave that in there? Why didn't we take this out? Well, can I tell you, there's some, some, there, there are things that, that, that I know to be true, and one of, them is, one of them is this, that Jesus on the cross that what he does, he absorbs all the sin of all mankind throughout all of history. And when Jesus absorbs all the wrath of God as he hangs upon the cross for you and I, that means all, that means all, that all of our sinfulness, all of our iniquity is absorbed into Christ. Everyone that has ever lived, everyone back from that of Abraham when he lies about Sarah being his sister when it's really his wife, everyone from David who commits adultery to my sin, to your sin, to my children's sin, to my children's children's sin and their children's sin, that all of those is covered. That is the language, all transgression across all time for all people people is covered here. So what I realize when I read this story is this, that Jesus extends mercy from the cross as he senses and feels the reality of hell for you and I. And I think that is something that we need to understand. We're not here to debate whether this is metaphorical or literal. That's not what this is about at all. There are some things that I know because of what the Bible teaches. And and I believe those things. And one is this, that there is a literal hell. Understand that. That there is a literal hell. I understand and believe because the scriptures teach that Jesus simply died on the cross. He was placed in the grave. And because of that, he, he rose on the third day. That I understand that he conquered death, hell, and the grave. That I'm no longer a slave to sin. I no longer fear death because Jesus has conquered death for you and I. Those are the facts and we stand on those facts. And we don't move from those things. We don't move from those things. There were, there are immutable facts in our lives today taught by Scripture. But when I come to statements like he's descended to hell, boy, it begins to really make me think. It begins to make me think. And I think there are some dangerous thoughts here that we could cover this morning, and that is those thoughts of dualism, that somehow that during this time that there's this great clash of titans of equal powers and somehow there's this great sword battle between Jesus and the devil and there are sparks that fly that simply are like lightning bolts that come as their swords strike against each other to fight for the, the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Can I tell you something today? That Satan is nothing but a fallen angel, always has been, always will be. He's nothing but simply like a muzzle dog on a chain. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And if you ever equate their powers in a battle, then I think that you are theologically skewed, and it's a very dangerous thought for you to even have. It's a very dangerous thought for you to have. But when I come to this thought of descended into hell, that, that what, I, what I realize is this, that, that at, at this point in history when Jesus hangs upon the cross, and hold on because this is going to really rock your brain for a moment, okay? It's going to make your mind hurt a little bit, and, and you're going ha- to desire more donuts and coffee, okay, in just a moment. But it's going to make your brain hurt because here is the thought that, that it's some way and some means and, and somehow that in the secrets of divine sovereignty and that of God's omnipresence and all-powerful God. And when I see this and I, and I begin to read about this, what I realize is that the longer I walk with God, the more I become comfortable with mystery. 
Mystery is not confusion. But this is mystery because you and I do not know everything because we cannot in our infinite, our, 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 our minds, our finite minds, we cannot absorb all the truths of all these kinds of things. But what I realize in God's divine sovereignty and all of these kinds of things that for the first time in history of the universe, there is this separation that takes place on the cross between that of Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father. And it's hard for me to understand that. It's hard for me to understand how that happens. There is this type of of God the Father turning His back on God the Son for the very first time. Because when I read this scripture that we just read, it's the very first time we ever find, and the only time I believe that we ever find in scripture where Jesus does not refer to God as the Father but he refers to him as my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place that we find it. Why? Because he feels the agony of the separation uh, from God, the Father. He feels that for the first time. He feels that within his life. Why? Because he feels what we feel in the separation of God with our sins that we feel that. How many times in your life have you ever said, where is God? I don't know where God is in the middle of this. I don't understand what God is doing. God is a million miles from me. Listen, in order for Jesus to be that sympathetic, empathetic priest that we find in the book of Hebrews that feels those feelings of our infirmities. He has to feel everything that we have felt. He has to. And for that moment hanging on the cross that the Son of God feels separated from God the Father. And I don't understand how that happens. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus. That's what I want to know. How does this happen? But for that moment, he feels that. He feels God the Father has turned his back on him and doesn't look at him. Can I tell you, that explains to me what this means by simply descending into hell. Because if that's not hell, what is hell? What is hell? To being separated from that of God the Father. He feels that for you and I because he knows that we will feel that within our lives. I began to look at this because I was so curious and it took me back to Psalm 22. And later on, you can read it for yourself. Psalm 22 is the exact words that we find Jesus simply saying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is this story of a suffering king whose hands and feet are pierced, who he is mocked, his side is pierced, and people gamble for his garments. Doesn't that sound like a familiar story? But yet it's written in the book of Psalms and and chapter 22. It is amazing. Here is what Jesus is doing. Even on the cross, even in this situation, he is extending mercy because there is no end to the mercy that God extends to us. And so he's extending mercy because we find first earlier he prays for those, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing And now he's quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's simply trying to awaken them to what is going on in their life. And some real smart, you know, rocket scientist there at the cross that day says, oh, he's calling out for the prophet Elijah. Well, where does that come from? We don't know, you know, but they think that he is. But he's extending mercy in that time of torture for the first time. In some divine and mysterious way. He feels separated from God. Oh. And I've thought that through for a lot. 
And I thought, you know, Mark, I put this all together. And I thought, Mark, you're never going to get beyond this point. You know that, don't you? You have all this other stuff. And you're never going to make it because this is so, so powerful that he feels separated from God. Because everything good and everything perfect in this world, whether you're a Christian or not, understand this, is a gift of the common graces of God, the presence of God. And what hell is, yes, there is a literal place. But what you feel is this. Hell is the absence of the presence of God to bless. It's the absence of the presence of God to bless. And it's the presence of God to judge and all of a sudden that is exactly what Jesus feels we've all said something like oh this is hell you know I don't know if you've ever said that or not yeah you go to your job tomorrow this is hell you know this is hell that I know that God has employed me at hell that's for sure and this is hell and some of you thinking oh you don't think that's that's not hell I live in hell at home my relationships are hell this is hell and we've all most of us have used that term at some point I've even used it as well anyway I've used it in the past as you know this is really this is like hell we have no idea what we're saying we don't because we've yet to really, to really, we feel this, but we've yet to really feel life devoid of the presence of God to bless. We have. What do you mean? Because right now you just inhaled air, filled your lungs, and you exhaled carbon monoxide. You know what? That is God's presence to bless your life because you're only believing, you're only breathing because it's a common grace that God has given you the breath to breathe. It is. When you go to lunch today or whatever you do after service, that food will taste and it will taste good most of the time and it will nourish your body because that's the presence of God to bless. Some of you will go on vacation. Many of you are on vacation if you watch this online. And and you will go and you will sit at the beach. You'll put your feet in the sand and you will watch the waves come in. You'll hear them crash against the shore and you will feel that you are minuscule compared to the vastness of the ocean. And God has given that to you a common grace for you to mesmerize you because it's the presence of God to bless. Can you imagine life devoid of all of those feelings? That is exactly what Jesus felt. You have to let that sink in for a moment. I just... I just want you to think about it for a second. That that is exactly what the Son of God felt. And we have to go to the question, why? You see why we left that in there? Because he felt that for you and for me. Because he knows what it's like to be us. How could he make that statement if he's never felt the things that we have felt? And it be truth. Because he knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be in that moment when we feel like God is is a, a million heavens away from us. He knows what it's like to be in that moment when we feel abandoned. He knows what it's like to be in that moment when we feel like, you know, God could have done this. God could have made this better in my life. God could have done something else and this would never have happened in my life. He knows what it's like to be us. He is a God who is able to be touched with the very feelings of our infirmities. He knows what it's like to be us. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, senses and feels the reality of hell. 
He knows us. He knows you. And I pray that when you read this story again and when you go to a Good Friday service or, or, or wherever you find yourself even during, the, during the Easter resurrection time, when you hear these stories a lot, that this means something different to you, that He truly knows us. Because He sensed on the cross the very reality of hell. Separation from the presence of God to bless. Wow. Can I tell you something else about this story this morning? Sure, Mark, you're going to tell us anyway, so you might as well go ahead, you know? And you got a little while, so you might as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's the evidence of God's resurrection. The, the evidence of God's resurrection is so powerful. The evidence, circumstantial or whatever, surrounds, <clears throat> surrounding the, the resurrection of Christ is so compelling that people have been forced to make crazy stories up for so many years as to what's happened. One of the stories that has, was made up, and many believe it, is what they call the swoon theory. And that is that Jesus was so depleted of blood, he was so beaten on the cross, that when they checked his pulse, it was so, it was so minute that they could not de- de- detect a pulse. And so they wrapped him in grave clothes, they put him in the grave, they roll a stone over the grave, and at some point, Jesus comes back to consciousness, at some point within the grave, and somehow he rolls the stone away himself, and he crawls out of the grave. It's the thought of that of a person being stranded at sea for weeks and somehow that superhuman effort to simply want to stay alive. Can you believe that? Yes. And I thought about that a lot. That that story is so full of holes and here's why it's full of holes. Here's my thinking is this. Because of the disciples. That's what really shoots so many holes in that kind of theory. Because the disciples were nothing but a gaggle of cowards. They really were. They were good at running and hiding, but never really standing up for something. You have Peter, who simply denies Christ when Christ is simply right almost in his face. And Jesus sees him, and he denies Christ himself. Yet you find Peter over in the book of Acts. What is he doing? He's standing up in the book in the, in the city of Jerusalem. He's preaching to thousands in the book of Acts. And we know that 3,000 that one day come to know Christ, and they are baptized Such a powerful thing. How does that happen? These 12 cowards. Listen, if you read the stories, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you find that they meet the most gruesome death. Some of them torn apart, beaten to death, thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, all those kinds of things, and slaughtered. All because Jesus somehow is swooning, and he comes back to life in the grave, and he crawls crawls out of the grave, Does confidence to die, be torn apart, come from that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How do you convince your half-brother James that you as a brother are the son of God? How do you convince him? Because you usually as a brother can't convince your brother much of anything, right? Because they know you. How do you convince your brother that you are the son of God? And here's how you do that you're crucified, that you physically die. You spend three days in a tomb, dead as a doornail, whatever that means. I don't know, but my dad used to say that. You defeat death, hell, and the grave. You make a mockery of the grave. And then three days later, you show up in a room and you don't have to use the door. And you find yourself in the midst of your disciples. And they touch the scars in your hand and on your feet. And they know that you are physically alive. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. 
So don't let fantasy take away from the physicality of Jesus Christ that He is alive. I want you to understand that as we wrap this up this morning, that He is alive. Because here is the thought that we have a tendency to divorce physicality from our faith. We do. We have this tendency to make everything ethereal and somehow spiritual and more in the realm of ideas than that of the idea of presence within our lives. Because here is the thing. It is now one minute after ten. Okay, we started this at nine o'clock. The reality is this, that you and I are one hour and one minute closer to that of physically touching Jesus. Did you know that? We are. Yes, that we're one hour and one minute closer to that of physically being in his presence, to hearing his physical voice, because the reality is he is alive physically, bodily now. Understand this. It was a physical body of Christ that was ascended into heaven, and it will be a physical body who will return someday. And you can't paint this as some ethereal idea today. He's not some X-man. He is not some angel who sprouts wings. He is a physical body, second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And since the resurrection of Christ was physical and bodily, what that means to you and I this today is that our sins are paid for. We have a surety of that, that there is a soundness in our forgiveness this morning. Can I read a text to you? It's from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1. And it says this, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins is in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But when we get to verse 3, it brings a lot of humility in our life, among whom we all, every one of us, once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of our own body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But these are beautiful words. Listen to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, excuse me, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That He, we can't divorce, we can't divorce the, all of this, our spirituality from the physicality of the risen Savior. And in light of that, we as Christians experience a spiritual resurrection in our lives. That we were once dead to our sins, but today we are alive in Christ. That means that we're no longer slaves to sin. Mark, you're talking loud this morning. I know. I know I am. Oh, but I feel this within my heart. And I can't whisper it when, I've really, I, when I'm feeling this in my heart and it's exploding within my heart this morning that something just wants me to yell and say this to you that we're no longer slaves to sin in our life. And we don't have to sin anymore. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Yes. Will we? Yes, absolutely. Some of you will sin before this sermon is even over. Yes, you will. Absolutely. (laughs) How? I don't know. 
But what has happened, because we have been simply resurrected spiritually today, that we're drawn not into guilt and not into shame, but into the sweetness of conviction that the Holy Spirit draws us to God to expose the sin of our life. We're covered in the forgiveness of God because He was physically resurrected and sets at the right hand of the Father. So the gospel is not this morning that I fix everything in my life and then I come to God when I'm feeling better about myself. But the gospel is this, that I come to Jesus when I'm screwed up. Because he is the only thing that can fix me. And the third thing is this, that we as Christians will experience a a physical resurrection. I have to read something else to you from the Bible. I know I've read a lot today. This is church, so that's kind of what we do, right? It's 1 Corinthians 15 and 42. It's, it's, a, it's a quite a few verses, but I want to read these to you. Then I will bring all this to a close, and we will pray, I promise. 1 Corinthians 15 and 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is talking about us. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. This is powerful. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, not a spirit, but a spiritual body that you and I will experience a physical resurrection. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. And this is a conversation where we cannot divorce in our resurrection that the spiritual and the physical body. And it's beautiful. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man talking about Jesus is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. That is us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That is us as believers. This is powerful. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. You shall not all sleep. You've probably heard this part, but you shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's a mouthful. But that's us. That we not only experience this spiritual resurrection, but we experience this physical resurrection. So my hope is not just about today. That's what this means. My hope is not just about God, you know, spiritually resurrecting me now and I'm no longer a slave to the sin of my life. But yet my hope is in 10,000 years when I rule and reign with Christ as his child that I will do that in this imperishable body that he gives me because this body was not created to live forever. What you see up here this morning is perishing right before your very eyes. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? The older I get, the more I realize the truth of that statement. 
It's perishing before your very eyes. Listen, sometimes for me is, you know, I'm, I'm anyway, I, I'm approaching this, this year, December 60, that I'm approaching that, that sometimes it even hurts to sleep. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, how, many, how many have you experienced that? Let me see your hand. It hurts to sleep sometimes. You wake up, yeah, and your neck's hurt, my back hurts, my shoulder hurts. Oh, you know, you get up and you kind of go, ugh. And Reba says, what's wrong this morning, you know? And you kind of like, so yes, it's perishing. I understand that. This is perishable. But what I realize is this, that my hope is not just in today, but my hope is 10,000 years from now that God has promised me that I will rule and reign with him in an imperishable body. Yes. That that hope is not just now, but that hope is to come. Oh, that that's the work of Christ on the cross for you and I. It is. Man, I feel like I've just run a race to get all that out this morning. I'm telling you, it was. I can't tell you how many pages of notes I had when I started this teaching this morning. I can, oh, I can tell you. I remember now. It was eight, and I have, I have narrowed it down to four. Can you believe that? Four. Some of you are thinking, Mark, we'd have been better with three. No, you got four, okay? Understand that. I brought it down to four. I could give you the eight. They're up in the office if you want the other four. But here is the thought as I bring this to a close this morning with you. That growing up in church, and man, I, I feel like that I was born in church. I feel like my mom gave birth to me on a pew, you know, because I've been there all my life. It's not quite that drastic, but yet I was born in church. I have this rich background of, of that, of, of godly people in my life. That my, my grandmother was a pastor when, when it was v- looked down very much and shunned upon in a very unscriptural manner, that of women in ministry. That, that my grandmother was a pastor. You know why? Because they couldn't find any sorry men to pastor the church that she was at. That's exactly why she did. Yes. And she could preach. Whew. Might you think that I get loud? You never heard loud. You should hear my grandmother. Man, she could preach, baby. And, and, her, and she would start with her hair up, and when she finished, her hair would be down. You know, she, she, just, she just got with it. As the old guys say, she could shuck the corn. And she could, baby. She could do it. And I grew up in church. And in church growing up, we had what we call a liturgy, you know. Now, the churches I grew up in, they didn't probably know what that word meant. So, but yet, and, and I'm thankful for my background, but we had a liturgy, the, the kind of flow of service and how things go, like we do here. And many times, church would, the church I grew up in, church always started with the Sunday school report. I don't know if you grew up in a church like that or not, where they told you classes and, and how many people they had and how much offering and, and, and who won the Sunday school banner for that day kind of deal, you know? It was like a competition kind of deal. And then we had the birthday offering, and everybody brought up their money that had a birthday, never quite understood that one, and uh, then asked for any anniversaries, and reluctantly people would raise their hands, and, and then we would sing a song, and then we would start church, and we would start with prayer, and they would sing a hymn. And back in the day, we sang hymn out of, hymns out of books. I don't know if y'all know that or not. You know, we sang them out of books. And, and back in the day, we didn't have projection. In fact, there, there was a time when I went to church that people thought that projection in church was sinful. I don't know why. You know, I have no idea. But, but they said, we're not having that newfangled stuff at our church. And so we believe in the book. The red one, too, is what we sang out of. Yes. Had to be the right color. 
And we sang a hymn, a couple of them. And then they would receive the offering, and then the pastor would come up and preach the sermon. But before he did that, before the pastor preached, it was always his special time, and someone would sing a special. I don't know if you grew up in church like that, but they sing a special. That's what we called it, a special. I never quite understood that. Like, nothing else in service was special but that moment, so they sang a special, you know? <sighs> and they would always start it with a testimony, and I want to share this song with you today because it's been speaking in my heart all week. Or A lot of times they would start it with, you know, Bless God, the devil's been on my back all week, and y'all pray for me, and you know what kind of song's coming after that. And, and so they'd sing a song. My mom sang specials in church. She did, yeah. So mom, I'm not talking bad about you, okay? So hang on, but it, uh, my mom sang specials in church, and my mom was the greatest singer. She wasn't. <laughs> But to me, she was the most awesome singer on the planet. Because she was my mom. And my mom loved to sing a song. And I said when I, I told myself this morning, Mark, do not get emotional when you talk about your mother. Stop it, you know. But I still have to. I love her so much. I miss her. Give me a minute. And my mom would sing this song because he lives. And the words would simply go like this. I'm not going to sing it, so don't get all like, oh, Lord. No, it's not. No, don't worry. Because I got the gift from my mom that I'm not a great singer. Okay. But but the words are like this. And I, I downloaded it from iTunes and listened to it late at night. And it says this, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, and then you after that, you have to do the whoa, whoa, whoa thing after that, right? If you remember the song, right? He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. And I want to say to you, I don't know what your tomorrow holds. And I don't know what is on the horizon for you. But can I say to you this day, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And our fear about tomorrow, our fear about the horizon and what may loom there, is swallowed up in the victory of the resurrection that he lives. He lives. And because of that, he has us. He has this. And I may be concerned, but I'm not going to allow fear to control me about tomorrow, about this afternoon, or about the next week, because he lives. He lives. I don't know what you're concerned about in your life this morning. And I don't know where your struggle is today. I don't know what you're worried about, concerned over, fearful. But can I tell you, paint it with the brush that he's alive today. And he has this. He knows you. There is nothing 
that you will ever feel or think that he has not felt. And he went through all of that without sin because he is the risen Savior, the Son of the living God. Would you bow your heads for a moment this morning, Father? It is because you live that we can find all kinds of self-help advice. We can reach out to a lot of people. And not all of that is bad within itself, God, and we understand that. But when any of those things divorce themselves from the fact that you are alive, it's because you live. Because you live, we face tomorrow. Because you live that all fear is gone. That we know that you hold a future. That when we separate ourselves, as we do many times from those immutable facts, then fear creeps into our lives. Worry creeps into our hearts. Jesus, as our Savior, you understand that. Because that is exactly what you felt when you hung up on the cross and you said, my God, my God, why, have thou, why has thou forsaken me? That is exactly what you felt. You felt that separation from the blessing of God in your life because you knew that at some point we would experience those feelings. But it's because you live. It's because you are present in our lives. It's because of a physical resurrection and ascension. The promise of a physical return. The promise of a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection of our perishable bodies. That we know that you have this. And so we trust you today. We trust you. If it's with our marriage, if it's with our kids, if it's with our future, our educational choices, a relationship, oh, if it's with a profession, a job, oh, if it's just struggling with an addiction or a sin in our life, God, you have this. Because Jesus... You live. You live. So, Father, we thank you. Mm. So I have to ask you a question quickly, and we'll sing. That maybe there's fear in your life over something, trepidation. Maybe you're worried There's something this morning that you just have to say, God, here it is. Because because you live, God, I'm just going to give this to you this morning. I'm going to surrender this situation, this person, this event in my life. But I surrender that to you. Because you have it covered. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if that is the way you feel this morning, if that's you, would you just put your hand up and say, God, that's me. And I'm raising my hand this morning. 
Because there are situations in my life which I have to simply say, God, this is yours. Because you live, I surrender this to you. And I give this to you today. Thank you, Father. So would you stand with me this morning? And during this song, boy, I encourage you to pray. And maybe you say, well, Mark, I need to make some kind of physical step on what I'm doing in my heart this morning. And, and God understands that. Then, then I would say that if you raise your hand or if this is what God is doing in your heart and your life, well, come and pray at the front. Nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to make a spectacle of you. No, you're not going to be taken to a room anywhere or given any materials. No, you're just going to have a time between you and God because I can't fix you. Nobody else in this room can fix you. Only Jesus, the risen Savior, can fix you. Just surrender that to him this morning. And let him work in your life today. Because he lives.